Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 48, verses 22 to 30. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, for what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of ye, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? And if ye then not be able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought of the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so closes the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Burkett notes, There is a twofold sense and interpretation given of these verses. One, some take them as spoken only to the apostles, directing them absolutely to cast off all care for the things of this life, that so they might attend upon Christ's person, and wholly give up themselves to that work to which he had called them. And therefore, St. Luke here takes notice that after he had cautioned his hearers in general against covetousness, he applied himself particularly to his disciples, and tells them that he would have them so far from this sin of covetousness that they should not use that ordinary care and common industry about the things of this life, which is not only lawful, but necessary for men in all ordinary cases. Verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or drink. But if we understand the words in this sense, we must look upon it only as a temporary command, given to the apostles for that time only. Like that in St. Mark 10.9, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, neither coat nor script, which no man ever understood as a general law to all Christians, but as a particular precept to the apostles at that time. Two, others understand these injunctions of our Savior to be consistent with a prudent and provident care for all the things of this life, not forbidding a regular industry and diligence for the obtaining of them, but condemning only an anxious, vexatious, tormenting care, an over-solicitous diligence for the things of this life. And taking our Savior's word for a general and standing rule to all Christians, they only forbid distrustful thoughtfulness, distracting cares which drive a man's mind this way and that, like meteors or clouds in the air, as the word signifies. Now against this vexatious care and solicitous thoughtfulness, our Savior propounds many weighty arguments or considerations. For, especially, he tells us such cares are needless, fruitless, heathenish, and brutish. 1. Tis needless. Your Heavenly Father know that ye have need of these things, and will certainly provide for you. And what need you take care and God too? Cast your care upon him. Two, tis fruitless. Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? We may sooner by our carping care add a furlough to our grief than a cubit to our comfort. All our own care without God's help will neither feed us when we're hungry nor nourish us when we're fed. Three, tis heathenish. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. Matthew 6.32 
the ends and objects of a Christian's thoughts ought to be higher and more sublime than that of heathens. Lastly, tis brutish, nay, worse than brutish. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the ravens of the valley, are all fed and sustained by God, without any care of their own, much more shall his children. Has God a breakfast ready for every little bird that comes chirping out of its nest, and for every beast of the field that comes leaping out of its den? And will he not so much more provide for you? Surely that God that feeds the ravens when they cry will not starve his children when they pray. Verse 31 But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Burkett notes, As if Christ had said, Let your first and chief care be to promote the kingdom of grace in this world, and to secure the kingdom of glory in the next. And then fear not the want of these outward comforts. They shall be added in measure, though not in excess, to satisfy, though not to satiate, for health, though not for surfeit. Learn one, that Christians ought not to be solicitous about the necessary inconveniences of this life, as about the happiness of the next. Rather seek ye the kingdom of God. Two, that heaven, or the kingdom of God, must be sought in the first place, that is, with our principal care and chief endeavors. Three, that heaven being once secured by us, all earthly things shall be superadded to us as God sees needful and convenient for us. But few men like our Savior's method. They would seek the things of this world in the first place and get to heaven at last. They would be content to seek the world and to have heaven thrown in without their seeking. But this will not be granted. For if we make religion and the salvation of our souls our first and chief care, all other things shall be added unto us, so far as the wisdom of God sees them fit and convenient for us. Verse 32 Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Burkett notes, That is, fear not the want of any of these comforts, and be not over-solicitous for them. For your Father, which has provided a kingdom for you hereafter, will not suffer you to want such things as are needful for you here. Learn, one, that the disciples of Christ are very subject to disquieting and perplexing fears, but must by no means cherish but oppose them. A fear of present wants, a fear of future sufferings, a fear of death approaching, a fear that they shall not find acceptance with God, a fear lest they should fall foully and finally from God. The fear of all these evils doth oftentimes disturb them and discompose them. Learn, too, that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of his church, the love and care, the compassion and tenderness, the prudence and providence, the guidance and vigilance of a good shepherd are found with him. Three, as Christ is the church shepherd, so the church is Christ's flock, though little flock, in opposition to the huge herds and droves of men of the world. Four, God the Father has a kingdom in store for his little flock, his church and children. Five, that the good will and gracious pleasure of God is the original spring and the fountal cause from whence all divine favors do proceed and flow. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verses 33 and 34 Sell all that ye have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heaven that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Burkett notes, The next duty which our Savior exhorts his disciples to is the duty of almsgiving, 
that they should be so far from distrusting God's provision for themselves that they should always be forward to a ready distribution towards others, yea, in cases of necessity, to be willing to sell their goods to relieve others. Yet this precept is not to be taken as if it concerned all persons at all times and in all places, but respects only cases of extreme necessity. Or if it concerns all, it is only as to the readiness and preparation of the mind, that when necessity calls for it, we be found willing to part with anything we have for the relief of Christ in his members. Observe also the argument used to excite this duty of almsgiving. Hereby we lay up our treasure in a safe hand, even in God's, who will reward us openly. The bellies of the poor are bags that wax not old. What is lodged there is laid up securely out of reach of danger. We imitate the wise merchant in transmitting our estates into another world by bills of exchange, where we are sure to receive our own with usury. Verses 35 and 36. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Burkett notes, the next duty Christ exhorts his disciples to is that of watchfulness, with reference to his second coming. Let your loins be girded and your lights burning. The words may be understood two ways, spoken either in a martial phrase, as to soldiers, or in a domestic, as to servants. If as to soldiers, then let your loins be girded and your lights burning, inasmuch as that we should always be ready for a march, having our armor on and our match lighted, ready to give fire at the alarm of temptation. If the words are spoken as to servants, then our master bids us carefully expect his second coming, like a lord's returning from a wedding supper, which used to be celebrated in the night. They should not put off their clothes, nor put out their lights, but stand ready to open, though he comes at midnight. When Christ comes, that soul only shall have his blessing whom he finds watching. Verses 37 through 40. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself, and make them sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Burkett notes, Here our Savior makes use of several arguments to enforce the duty of watchfulness upon his disciples. The first is drawn from the transcendent reward which Christ will bestow upon his watchful servants. He will gird himself, make them sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. A very high metaphorical expression as if a master should be so transported with the diligence and faithfulness of his servant as to vouchsafe not only to let him sit down to meet in his presence, but to take the napkin upon his arm and wait upon him himself at his table. Lord, how poor and inconsiderable is that service the best of us do for thee, and yet thou speakest of it as if thou were beholden to us for it. Thou dost not only administer to us a supper, but thou ministereth and waitest upon us at supper. He will gird himself and serve them. The second argument to excite to watchfulness is drawn from the benefit which we have received by watching in this life. That let the Lord come when he will, whether in the second or the third watch, 
they shall be found ready and in a blessed condition, who are found diligent in his service and waiting for his appearance. Note 1. That the Son of God will certainly come at one hour or other. 2. At what hour the Son of Man will come cannot be certainly known. 3. That there is no hour wherein we can promise ourselves that the Son of Man will not come. 4. Very joyful will the coming of the Son of Man be if we be found upon our watch and ready for his coming. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Verses 41 through 44. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Burkett notes, these words may be applied these two ways. First, to all the faithful servants of God in general. And then the note is this, that for a Christian to spend and end his days in the service of Christ and doing his will gives good assurance of a happy and blessed condition. Blessed is that servant. Secondly, these words may be applied to the ministers of the gospel in special. And then observe, one, the character and duty of a gospel minister. He is the steward of Christ's household, to give them their meat in due season. 2. A double qualification requisite in such stewards, namely, prudence and faithfulness. Who then is that faithful and wise steward? Observe 3. The reward ensured to such stewards with whom are found these qualifications. Blessed is that servant. Learn hence, 1. That the ministers of the gospel are, in a spiritual sense, stewards of Christ's household. 2 that faithfulness and prudence are the indispensable qualifications of Christ's stewards. 3. That where these qualifications are found, Christ will graciously and abundantly reward them. Our faithfulness must respect God, ourselves, and our flock, and includes integrity of heart, purity of intention, industry of endeavor, and impartiality in all our administrations. Our prudence must appear in the choice of suitable subjects, in the choice of fit language, in exciting our own affections in order to the moving of our peoples. Ministerial prudence also must teach us, by the strictness and gravity of our deportment, to maintain our authority and keep up our esteem in the consciences of our people. It will also assist us to bear reproach and direct us to give reproof. He that is silent cannot be innocent. Reprove we must, or we cannot be faithful, but prudently, or we cannot be successful. Verses 45 through 48. And if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the manservants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew the Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Burkett notes, Our Lord in these verses describes a negligent and unfaithful steward of his household, and then declares the dreadful sentence of wrath which hangs over him. 
The unfaithful steward or negligent minister of the gospel is described, one, by his infidelity. He believeth not Christ's coming to judgment, though he preaches it to others. He saith in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. Two, he is described by his hatred, envy, and malignity against his fellow servants that were more faithful than himself. He begins to smite them, at least with the virulence of his tongue, if not with the violence of his hand. Three, he is further described by his associating with the wicked and strengthening their hand by his ill example. He eateth and drinketh with the drunken, that is, as their associate and fellow companion. Thus the negligent steward and unfaithful minister is described. Next, his sentence is declared. One, Christ will surprise him in his sin and security by coming at an hour when he looketh not for him. Two, he will execute temporal vengeance upon him. He will cut him in pieces as the Jews did their sacrifices, dividing them into two parts. Hence, some observe that God seldom suffers slothful, sensual ministers to live out half of their days. Three, Christ will punish them with eternal destruction, appoint them their portion with unbelievers, teaching us that such ministers as neglect the service of God and the souls of their people, as they are ranked among the worst sorts of sinners in this life, so shall they be punished with them in the severest manner in the next. When Satan destroys the souls of men, he shall answer for it as a murderer only, not as an officer that was entrusted with the care of souls. But if the steward doth not provide, if the shepherd doth not feed, if the watchman doth not warn, they shall answer not only for the souls that have miscarried, but for an office neglected, for a talent hidden, and for a stewardship unfaithfully managed. Woe unto us, if at the great day we hear distressed souls roaring out their complaints and howling out that doleful accusation against us, saying, Lord, our stewards have defrauded us, our watchmen have betrayed us, our guides have misled us. Verse 48. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask more. Hence learn, one, that whatever we receive from God is both a gift and a talent. Two, that everyone has some gift or talent from God to be improved for God. Three, that God's gifts or talents are not given to all in the same measure. Four, that whether we receive little or much, all is in order to an account. Five, that answerable to our present talents will be our future accounts. The greater opportunities a man has of knowing his duty and the greater abilities he has for doing good, if he do it not, the greater will be his condemnation because the neglect of his duty in this case cannot be without a great deal of willfulness and contempt, which is a heinous aggravation. If thy gifts be mean, the less thou art to account for. If greater than others, God expects that thou should doest more good than others. For where much is given, much will be required.